Welcome to Not Your Typical Podcast. My name is Cheryl Warren, an award-winning trainer and consultant from the UK. I'm sharing my story, my passion, and my experiences to enable those working in earlier settings to change their thinking, their approach, and their provision, ensuring our neurodivergent children thrive in these critical early years. This is your go-to space for all things that celebrate the wonders and the uniqueness of our amazing neurodivergent children, a space to learn, understand, and accept difference as just that, difference. Hello everybody and welcome to my podcast. I've got an amazing guest um, for you to listen to today. Um, I have Jodie Warren with me and just as a caveat really quickly we're not related are we? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) There may well be some very loose link to the Warren family somewhere but um, but no certainly certainly no relation. We found each other on on social media and have connected um, as we have very similar um thought processes and thinking around around working with neurodivergent children and families but jody is uh, an icf accredited coach and mindfulness teacher with 19 years experience as a specialist teacher of children with additional needs she runs her own coaching and consultancy company supporting parents of children with additional support needs to understand their behavior supporting and advocating calmly and confidently and effectively without burnout and it's such an important area of support. So thank you so much, Jodie, for, for spending time and chatting with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So my first question, um, as I ask everybody, is what is your link with neurodivergence, either you know professionally or, or personally? What's your link? So um, as you mentioned there, my background is in specialist education. So I started uh, my teaching career down in London and I spent about 10 years down there and very quickly moved into the field of SEND. And I was a SENCO and an inclusion leader um, across various settings. Um, and that's where I first learned about autism. Um, this was well before um, neurodiversity was really talked about. Um, but I, w- I was fascinated, really fascinated in terms of just how um, children we're experiencing the world differently, this different perspective and really understanding more about what was going on for them in order to understand how to be able to effectively offer support. Um, And then after about 10 years down south, I moved back up, I'm based near Leeds now, um, and worked for two different local authorities. And in one of those roles, I was really focusing on supporting children um, with SLD. But in the other role, it was focusing on communication and interaction differences. And really, again, what I noticed in both roles was that neurodiversity was often a factor. So even where there were other um, comorbid um, needs that were being observed, really, that neurodivergence came across so many of the children that I was supporting in those different cohorts. Um, And really, I built from there and moved into specialising more around autism and ADHD specifically. Um, But then what I recognised was a lot of the work I was doing was in schools, but it was also supporting parents as well. So we'd be delivering parent training. 
And then in the last year of my role, I was working really, really closely with families as well as settings and really um, supporting, um, as you'll know from the training you deliver, that kind of holistic approach. So thinking about how do we get that consistency of approach across home and across the setting? And what I recognised in doing that was how much of a difference it could make when you had the opportunity to really work with settings and parents to think about, okay, this is the information that's available out there, but how does that translate in terms of how I can support my specific child or this specific child in our setting with how their needs present? Because as you and I know, and many staff know, you can have these overarching traits, which might be seen with um, a, a particular um, area of need, but actually how that presents and what support needs arise off the back of that is really, really unique. Um, and so that was what led to my training as a coach, because I was like, actually, these skills are where we can really drill down and go, this is the information, this is what could help, what could support, but actually, how do we empower you so that in your setting or in your home environment, you can take the strategies that are going to work for your family, that are going to work for your setting, for your whole class, and really put them in place so that you can make a difference um, for individual children. So I would say that interest in an understanding of neurodivergence has really developed um, from right back at the beginning of my uh, my teaching career through to now. Fantastic. Gosh, lots lots going on, lots to kind of unpick and lots of experiences to kind of pull on. And, and similarly to me, it's it, when you're placed in those experiences professionally and then and then you kind of think, actually, I really want to focus and really want to to hone in on this area. This is what interests me. This is where I feel the the lack of information or the lack of support is um, and actually where I feel I can I can make a difference. And I think, you know, you're right. I talk a lot about it in terms of that that presentation how does autism how does ADHD present for that child um you know Google and Instagram are are wonderful things and you can kind of find out lots of information um and there's you know there has to be you know I guess for any um uh route of diagnosis there has to be a kind of process of a checklist and and you know do people exhibit this this and this okay that will make them be presented as as a as an autistic diagnosis, but it's so vast, it's so it's so different. And I think, and certainly from a parent's perspective, you know, I was very much given um, we were given the diagnosis for my son, and you know, off you go. And then you're mm -hmm. open to the elements in terms of of like I say, Google and 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 the internet. And I think to help parents understand their child, how it presents for them, how their neurotype impacts them, their sensory needs, all of those things is so vitally important because otherwise you can get, you can go down a rabbit hole, can't you, of, of possibly unrelated or, or misinformed advice. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think there's also an element where we're not, you're not just looking at your child's or a child's neurotype in isolation. It's also considering what is your neurotype. And by that, it's not necessarily a neurodivergence, but it's just your preferences, your beliefs, your experiences, what you 
um, are expecting in certain situations and it's how does that interplay with how a child is presenting and I know in terms of a lot of the settings that I used to um, be supporting in when I was still in the advisory capacity a lot of the time referrals came through and the support that was needed was around how do we support emotional regulation and it can be really interesting when you actually think of that interplay because when we dig underneath that emotional dysregulation and we're looking at the needs that are going on there can be really quite a vast range of knowledge that you might need to have in order to be able to make what can only ever be an informed guess about what might be triggering 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 that's not a word uh, what might be contributing to situations and maybe exacerbating them and equally what's going to make things better but you've also it's not just an understanding of what's going on for the child I think staff it can be really helpful to have an understanding of what's going on for yourself as well to understand why one member of staff um, will maybe experience those behaviors in a particular way um, and maybe we'll be able to respond quite calmly, be able to think quite logically about next steps. And for another member of staff, actually, they find it a lot harder to do that. And they feel that that behaviour really challenges them. Um, so, yeah, it's that interplay between the, the child and the adult, but also the child and the other children as well, that you need that broader perspective to be able to, to consider what's going to be a helpful way forwards. It's quite a reflective process then, isn't it? And and mm. sometimes looking inward can be quite um, emotive, can't it? And, and a lot of that is kind of fed by your um, your own experiences, how you were raised, your, your own expectation, your own thoughts and your own um, perception of how children should behave or, or how um, children should be in, in certain situations. Um, so, yeah, it could be quite an emotive, quite a reflective process. So you spoke about the the holistic approach very much linking parents and and you know the educators within the setting and working in that very much that holistic holistic way. Um, I know for many um, educators it 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 can be quite a, a barrier because you feel that you want to do all that you can to support the child. You've identified some some potential emerging traits. You want to. We all know and, and understand the impact of of those that early support and that early help. And then you're um, you have those discussions with parents, and they're not yet necessarily ready to have mm -hmm. that open conversation with you. Um, how how would an educator and how would you support teams to to really work together with the parent in that holistic way and to kind of reduce some of those barriers that maybe parents are are facing mm. and even you know it may be educators facing as well I think when it comes to advocacy it's really key that we think about it as a, a collaborative process and as you say it can be that as educators what we can sometimes forget is that we might have been here before with a different child. We might know um, what we're looking for or recognise that there are particular needs and that a child is struggling with something, is maybe needing support with something. Particularly in the early years, um, I find that staff can find that sometimes the conversations you're having, it's the first 
time a parent's experienced the education system. And it's certainly the first time that um, potential concerns have come up or um, the idea that maybe their child does have a need and that some additional support would be helpful has even been raised. And it's so key to meet parents where they are. Um, because the flip of that is that equally you may have a parent um, where there are particular needs that have been recognised really early on. And you may be supporting a parent who actually has spent the last two or three years researching nothing but the child's needs, the implications of those needs um, now going forwards. So they've got a really, really clear understanding that's going to outstrip any professional's understanding because that is absolutely what they're focused on but if we think about parents where that's maybe not the case and you're maybe having to broach the conversation I think what can be really helpful is to think of it under what I call the four pillars of effective advocacy so you're thinking about the first one as being that understanding of need recognizing that there may be a difference between the needs as you understand it and as the parent does and really taking the time and making the space for those conversations um, can be really helpful and inviting that discussion that reflection with parents about is there anything that they've noticed at home what maybe is easier at home what's maybe more difficult and I think being aware as well there's quite a few studies that have been done that have looked at this idea of parental blame and parents can sometimes feel by even by the time that they're um, working with earlier staff they may have been working with medical professionals or other professionals prior to that and they can already have this feeling of oh it's something I'm doing wrong and that questioning around there being a potential need can be heard as oh, you're saying that I should have done something or I have done something wrong and it's something I'm doing at home, particularly where there's maybe a discrepancy between what you're seeing in a setting and what parents are seeing at home. So just considering all of those factors can be really, really key. The second pillar is around understanding the system um, and that can be about understanding the education system but also understanding the SEND system and really thinking about how is it being made clear to parents um, how support fits into this system, how this discussion maybe fits into um, a broader process. So, for example, if we're thinking about we're identifying the needs, we're going to put in some support, then we're going to um, review that support and then we're going to decide on next steps. It can be helpful for that to be really clearly explained so that parents understand this isn't an ad hoc process. This is part of almost a spiral where we're going to keep coming back and we're going to see is, is that support working? Is it effective for this child? And if it's not, then what are we going to do next? How are we going to build on that support? How are we going to tweak that support? And for parents to know that as they move through this process, they're going to be supported and that there's always a way forward. And some of the discussions I've had with parents their interpretation of what has been said and obviously I don't know what was said but in some discussions with settings has been oh well they're going to do this but if that doesn't work then I don't know what next because they haven't got that understanding of um, that ongoing process which to us as educators can seem really obvious but isn't obvious when you're outside of the system and particularly when you're new to the entire education system. 
The third pillar is around um, how do we create an environment that's really reassuring and supportive to parents and enables them to advocate for their child. So within that, when I'm working with settings, we'd be looking at things like our listening skills, our communication skills, but also how do we create an environment that physically is going to reduce parental anxiety? So if we think about meetings, um, are we letting parents know in advance who's going to be there, what the purpose of the meeting is, how it fits in a broader system? Are we giving them that opportunity to say, actually, I'd like to raise this or I don't quite understand this but ahead of time so that we can make that meeting as effective as possible in terms of moving support forward for children? And then that fourth pillar is really around well-being. So that um, when we think about emotional regulation for us as adults, both as staff and as parents, if there is stress in the mix, so if we're worried about how a meeting is going to go or if a parent is worried about how a meeting is going to go, our nervous system moves into this heightened state. And when we're in that heightened state, we can't communicate as effectively. We can't process information as effectively. Um, and we're more likely to respond maybe defensively or from a place of stress. Whereas if we can think about, right, how do we proactively reduce that stress for ourselves and for parents, then we can all go into that meeting ready to have discussions and be really open to, to listening, to collaborating and to finding solutions. And it's not about anybody um, having done anything wrong. It's not about what's not been put in place. It's about, right, what are the possible options available to us? And which of those feel comfortable for both parents and for the setting? And let's try implementing them. And then let's agree when we're going to review it to see, is this working or do we need to do something different? I mean, you're, you're talking my language, Jodie, completely. I, I, you know, I was delivering a training session yesterday and, and the majority of the training is obviously focused on the child and supporting the child's um needs whether that be their emotional needs whether that be their their sensory needs um and 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 looking at the unique child in front of you not just based on on diagnoses and i very much talk about exactly what you've said in order for us to support the child we also have to create that space for the parent <clears throat> and when we're looking at how how we can provide that neuro affirming that neuro inclusive space we need to look at that notion of felt safety and that and that place where the family feel that this is a place for them, feel where they, you know, is it a place where they belong? So right from the get-go, when you are showing a parent around, what's your narrative around SEN? Because like exactly like you said, you could have that parent that has been Googling and researching for 18 months, two years prior to the child starting any education setting they know but maybe they haven't yet felt the strength or the support to say it out loud so when they're going and being shown around at an early years setting as a parent myself I want to hear what's what's the language being spoken about around you know a, a, a child having those additional support needs is it deficit is it developmental delay is it not reaching reaching milestones is it that negative deficit language because then I'm not going to feel safe as a parent to then be able to to open up and have that discussion with you mm. I need to you know it's about creating that space where 
parents are not feeling judged or criticized you know it's your poor parenting or you know whatever else it might be because we get that from society when we're we're out and about we're judged we're looked at we're you know commented on so it definitely is like you said about creating that environment um that's reassuring and supportive yes the physical space but also from our language and our communication and our narrative mm. i think language is so important and you mentioned the, the Google, you know, the uh, the impact of Google and a lot of the information that is out there really aligns with that medical model that you've touched on. This idea of deficit, this idea of less, this idea of can't do. And I think to have that experience as staff to proactively seek out neurodivergent voices, to seek out neuroaffirming perspectives and to integrate that language. So actually what we're talking about, we're not talking about behaviors, we're talking about needs. We are really focused on what support can we implement? And really thinking, I think parents sometimes feel that their input is invited, but it's like a tick box exercise. And a lot of settings I know do amazingly and the way that they work with parents is incredibly um, supportive and it's genuinely collaborative. And then there are a number of many, many settings where that's what they want to do. But actually the gap is, but how do we do this? And how do we do this with the time pressures that we have? And to circle back to this idea of language, if we are really if we integrate that neuroaffirming language into how we're talking, when we're showing parents around, when we're having those discussions, um, I think that all feeds into that really positive collaboration. And also we're providing a model for parents as well, because when parents do start to Google, if you're raising, oh, we've noticed um, these particular needs, these particular presentations, and parents start Googling, and then they come across this deficit medical model, it can be horrendous and it can be really, really hard to read. And it's one narrative. And there's this whole other narrative that says, actually, this is a difference of perspective. This is a difference of experience. It just means we need to think about what provision we're putting in place, what support we're looking at. And there may be differences in terms of the rate of hitting these particular predetermined milestones. But actually, that's not it's not a problem. It's we need to think about what support we're putting in place and change some of those expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, they're really matching our child's neurotype and having that embedded in how we understand children's needs can then in turn, that's going to impact the language and it is going to impact parents' experience in all of those interactions, which means that where maybe needs are more complex and we are needing more of those meetings, more of those collaborations with parents we've built the foundation of real trust and parents know that at the heart of it as educators we're rooting for their child we want to support we want to put that place in um not place in apologies uh, we want to put that support in place um, and I think that's so key to being able to have these really positive relationships and also set parents up so they do feel confident advocating for their child going forwards as they move through their school career and I think if we're looking at 
educators and settings that kind of say we really want to do this or we, we, we do we think we do it we think or or we want to do it better um i think we need to look at how how we can support settings to do that it's kind of like i said you know to you earlier the more we know the more we can do um and it's the you know the information and the education and the training and the support for the educators to be able to deliver effectively on it because you as an educator you need to have that level of confidence and you know as you know as i said in your your introduction that calmness that that kind of sense of as from a parent's perspective this is somebody that i know is going to support me aid me in 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 whatever route i'm going down not judge me not criticize me and and advocate for me um so we know we've got lack of funding lack of support we know we've got a staffing crisis within within early years um how can settings what what can they do now what can they start to do right now that isn't going to be some you know big flashy dancey kind of big show of, of change or um you know expensive kind of process what what kind of key things can they start to do today tomorrow next week that actually will start that process of 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 more of you know kind of hitting those those four pillars of, of advocacy advocacy for for their families i think the the first one you've touched on um is taking a moment to recognize that when you're reviewing what's currently in place, if you find that there are gaps, knowing that that's not because you did anything wrong, you were doing the best that you could up to this point with what you knew. Mm. And I think showing ourselves that self-compassion is really, really important because otherwise it can be really hard to honestly review what's in place. We almost feel we need to defend what we're doing already. So taking that step back, and looking at, okay, what have we actually got in place? What is working? Um, and also where are their gaps? And then that means you can drill down because sometimes we can feel we need to review and do everything differently, but actually there will be elements of what settings are already doing that are working. And it's really important to recognize them. Thinking about those four different pillars, when we're thinking about understanding, um, we've touched on this around the language. So making sure that the language that we're using is really focused on needs, it's focused on support, it's focused on accommodations, and proactively seeking out those neurodivergent voices and neuroaffirming voices. So you can make sure that you're integrating that and consider, is there anything that you could amend in any of the documents or the policies that are going out to parents to help to help them to understand. The second one um, is thinking about the SEND system. And I think looking at how is that explained, and it can be really difficult when you are in it to even recognize that you're using jargon, but really taking a step back and thinking about as somebody who may never have come through the early years um, process through that section of the system is there jargon in there that we can either create a glossary we can make something that will explain this to parents so they've got that understanding and they're actually able to contribute meaningfully and is there um anything that we want to reword that we want to think about rephrasing 
Um, and within that can even be, I know in some of those initial discussions with parents, we can be talking about things like expected progress. That's quite a subjective, quite broad, we know what it means and the actual words can seem really simple, but the concept and what that looks like for a child relies on awful lot um, on our professional knowledge. So just really thinking about how can we at a foundational level, make that accessible so parents actually understand what's going on. They actually understand uh, what this means, what the support might be if there maybe is a discrepancy in that expected progress. Um, thinking about things like how do you flatten the hierarchy? So it can seem like a really, really simple thing. And in my experience, a lot of early year settings are really, really good at this. And they do have a dynamic where um, parents and staff are maybe on first name terms but if you're miss I've been watching a lot of the worst witch if you're Mrs Hardbroom and you <laughs> and then this is mum straight away there is an inequality when we think about that collaboration so how do how do the parents want to be addressed and making sure that we adhere to that can just really flatten that hierarchy which I think can be be really really important and then if you think about uh, any potential meetings that you've got, I always talk about um, doing it as a sandwich. So if we want to think about how we can really invite, encourage and support parents to contribute meaningfully and think about how do we support that well-being, how do we reduce that stress and that anxiety, thinking about ahead of the meeting, have you actually shared who is going to be there? Have you shared how it's going to be structured? What the main aim of it um, is? I've spoken to parents where they've almost felt ambushed um, because they were coming to a meeting to talk about their child's progress. But that was the, all the information that they'd been given. And it's a really delicate balance because you can't um, cover everything in that initial chat. But just making sure that parents are actually prepared and they know um, the overview of what's going to be covered in a meeting can be really, really helpful in reassuring them and checking, do they want to bring anybody in with them? And that can be partly the moral support, but it can also be even when a parent appears completely calm, they appear like everything is absolutely fine. There can be this underlying stress. And we've touched on this, the idea that that impacts on executive function skills. So in terms of how they're actually able to process the information that's being covered, that can be impacted if they are feeling stressed. So they've got somebody with them who's maybe making notes, who's maybe able to just clarify for them later. That can really help. Otherwise, parents can leave a meeting. You feel you've covered everything and everybody was really happy. And the parent goes, away well, I can't remember that. I didn't actually understand that. I can't remember what actions were agreed. So um, taking those steps ahead of a meeting and checking, is there anything that parents do want to cover? Really important because if parents raise something in a meeting, it can be hard to resolve. If they raise it ahead of a meeting, you can go and find out the information that you need. So you're in a position to actually answer their question when you do meet. Um, and if you have got larger meetings, just thinking about, is there a member of staff who maybe goes and meets and greets and brings the parent in so that we can, again, bring down any anxiety and really support parents to feel included? I've attended some meetings where you have maybe quite a number of professionals and then you just have a parent or you know two parents, a carer, and 
it can be quite intimidating. So somebody actually going, meeting a parent, having that chat, going in, sitting with them can be really, really helpful just to, to ensure that they're able to contribute. And also after the meeting, um, just sending a follow up. So just confirming this is what we covered. This is what we agreed. And it doesn't have to be long, but just a really brief email um, to say, if there was anything that's unclear that you want me to clarify, do let me know. But it keeps those lines of communication open. We're really clear about what do parents do. And if they've gone away, there's something that they haven't understood or another question that they wish they'd asked we're inviting that open dialogue parents aren't thinking oh gosh we've got to wait six weeks before I can I can follow up on that and a lot of the time for parents what they feed back is that they just feel like they should have understood it mm -hmm. but if we recognize actually this isn't their full-time job they're not in education and it's respecting that and trying to make it as easy for parents as possible because there was a parent I spoke to recently and they said their thing that they really wanted settings to understand was that what we're seeing from an educational perspective is the tip of the iceberg. So if we're seeing emotional dysregulation, if we're seeing um, that a child maybe has speech and language communication differences and that maybe has implications in the setting, all of those implications are magnified at home um, and parents are trying to support their child. They're trying to do it without the training without necessarily the understanding that we might have access to and the advice but they're also doing it with the emotional attachment that as professionals professionals you haven't got so just being aware that it is that tip of the iceberg so everything and anything we can do to make it easier for parents is going to improve that dynamic that collaboration but it's also going to improve outcomes for the child as well because they're more able to support at home and to work with us to move things forward. Oh, that's amazing. Some really kind of key things that people can can literally take away and, and start to look at and go, okay, how do we how do we currently do this? What do we what are we currently saying around this area? And like you say, even down to somebody going to greet the parent and, and the space that you're taking them into, does mm. it feel clinical and, and office like and and like you say, it kind of has that them and us kind of feel. You know, if you've got the the manager or Senko sat high up on a chair and the parents are sat on a little sofa or a child's chair and like you say, flatten that that hierarchy. It's really it's really important. And it's very much looking at, I think, everything that you're doing with your families and, and always kind of, OK, is that collaborative? Is that collaborative? Is that collaborative? And making sure that that what we're doing is always with our parents, not to our parents they may be looking to us as the professional and and to the, as the the kind of font of knowledge and support and guidance but it's not always about that kind of top down i will speak and you will listen it's it's let's let's shift that dynamic and and, and work with and and support and and like you said right at the beginning listen yeah. ask a question and really hear the answer because you'll you'll discover so much more and you know I I talk to, to to educators around you know pick up on those things that parents are saying around oh I've had no sleep we're exhausted so and so you know only had three hours sleep last night or you know they haven't had you know a, a, a kind of full meal over the weekend they've just had you know their their safe foods over the weekend and the child's exhausted and the parents exhausted 
don't brush those comments away really truly here because that goes back to your you know your fourth pillar around the well-being of the family um and, and coming in with your making sure that your your discussions are not judgmental or, or or critiqued even with you know parents that are saying their child needs the tablet to eat their lunch mm. rather than oh well we don't do that here and we need to discourage that really listen as to why and how that actually is impacting that family who as a parent like you say you've got that emotional connection and all you want to do is make sure that your child's getting some food and if that means 10 minutes in front of the ipad whilst they're eating some food that's what you're going to do because that's what you feel that your your child really needs and 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 you're going to do what you can for your child whether or not other people judge that as right or wrong that's what sometimes what we need to do just to get through the day yeah yeah it's so true and I think there is also a shift in you have to be quite the word that's coming to me is brave because it's being open to admitting to parents that actually we don't know all the answers and that can feel really counter to how we feel cast in our role but to say actually I know all this information about dyslexia about autism about ADHD and I know what um, it looks like for Bob in my class actually you have this wealth of information that I really need to understand if we're going to put in the support that's going to be most effective mm. and to be able to have the confidence to step back and go actually I don't have all the answers but together we can work it out can take a real shift in thinking but when we do that then it means that it's again as you said that felt safety and it has to be felt safety for educators as well and so it is a two-way process and when I'm supporting parents we're looking at that too it's if you know if a pair a, a teacher a setting are saying actually we're not quite sure what to do but would really like to try this and see if it could work that is far preferable to a setting who are saying that they've got all the answers and they know exactly what's going to work because that's just not how it works so that felt safety is so important in both directions but modeling that and being brave enough to say actually yeah we don't know we really want to work with you um to to find out the next steps to work out what's going to be supported and we want to review it to make sure it's actually working see what we need to be doing differently can help parents to really understand that process that they're going to be moving through as they move up schools and knowing that that's actually okay there isn't one answer fits all and that helps i think both educators and parents find a way to really invest their time, their energy, their headspace in the things that are actually going to make the difference um, to an individual child um, rather than taking this one size fits all, oh, this is what we do approach. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And, and you said about people finding out more if they don't know the answer and <clears throat> what I'll do in the in the notes um, with the podcast is pop in all of your social media and your and links to you because you you put up so much useful um, and detailed information across your across your social media um and in terms of where early settings can can find you and people can come and get to, uh kind of get information from you i know you're going to be speaking at an event that we're both speak, speaking at this year aren't you, you want to share that 
Yes, I have to remember the date now. I think it's the 1st of March um, down at the um, the Earliest um, Expo in London. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to speaking at that and obviously to meeting in person as well. That would be nice. That was, actually see that people have, you know, a lower half to their body. They have they have yeah. legs. And I'm always amazed at how tall or short people are when I meet them because yeah. I haven't figured that out. That's <laughs> in advance. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And if settings do want support, um, it can be really helpful to have that external person who, again, it's not about judgment. It's about just that reviewing and looking at, right, what's working? What can we do differently? And getting the training in place and really committing to to integrating working with parents into everyday practice and just thinking, how do we build on that? How do we improve on that? So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing with settings at the minute as well. So if anybody does want to find out more about that, just drop me an email. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to have a conversation. Amazing. And definitely worth having a conversation with you for sure. Thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate your time. You've given so much, um, so many nuggets of, of just pure gold um, that I think people can can take away. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. It's been really great having you with me. Do let me know what you thought of the episode. I'd really love to hear your thoughts. And I'd also love to connect with you more. So do come and find me on my Instagram at aperion underscore training or email me via my website. All of the details are in the show notes below. And so that you don't miss out on any further episodes, do make sure that you hit that follow button. Thanks very much. Take care.